Come on in, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, we do have some Bibles, uh, either in a seat underneath and um, a seat uh, right in front of you. There, there's also some shelves in the back under the offering baskets, or there's some Bibles. Uh, there may even be a, um, a large print, yeah, I'm looking to make sure, large print blue Bibles back there. Uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah. This morning, uh, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, uh, and so if you open your Bible in the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms or Proverbs. You want to go left uh, and keep going. If you get to Genesis, well, you went too far. Uh, it's after First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Chronicles. Then you have Ezra and then Nehemiah. If you are looking in a Hebrew Bible in the original language, it's actually one book, Ezra Nehemiah. So you may not find Nehemiah; you just find both of them together. But anyone here have a Hebrew Bible? I don't. I know that anyone here uses those. Okay. I know that some might have it on their phone, like little helps and things, which is good. Uh, anyway, there's page numbers on the uh, bulletin uh, for all the different Bibles that we have here. Red Bible, large print, blue Bible, and the children's Bible. So, well, very good. Well, it is an honor for me. As I mentioned, Pastor Dan's on vacation, uh, and so I'm, uh, I have the privilege of, of preaching this morning and also kicking off a new sermon series. Uh, we've wrapped up Romans, and uh, as we were thinking about this summer, uh, we wanted to go Old Testament, and uh, so what better place to go than Nehemiah? Uh, Nehemiah uh, is, uh, some commentators say, some of the most lively writing in all of the Bible. Uh, a lot of first-person action, a lot of things going on. Uh, there's, there's even, you know, as the plot goes, there's, there's struggle, there's opposition, there's overcoming opposition, uh, and, uh, and then seeing how God is faithful to his people in the midst of all this. So, as we begin, I'm going to ask you a question, uh, and it's kind of an odd question perhaps, but how many of you ever start reading a book, maybe a book you get at the library, or, or a book maybe you, got in, you, you bought a new one on Amazon, or a friend gave you a book, how many of you get this book and you open up right in the middle, and you start reading in the middle? Anyone do that when they start? Yeah, a couple? Okay. Very odd, okay. <laughs> so I, my son, my oldest son, Ross, loves to read, and, um, and he had a book that he took on our vacation. We were gone last week, and I asked him, I said, hey, how's the book? He goes, I don't know. I just read it in the middle a little bit. And I said, why Why'd you start in the middle? He goes, oh, I don't know. I just did. And I said, did it make sense? Well, I figured it out eventually. Most of us... Most of us, apart from some friends over here and my son, start books at the beginning, don't we? Um, and there's a good reason for this, isn't there? If we start a book in the middle, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? You're sort of going, who are these people? What's happening? What are they talking about? Where are they? And, and so what do you find yourself doing very quickly? You're turning back the pages. Okay, who is this person? I'm going back, I'm going back, I'm going back. So here's the, here's the thing. The book of Nehemiah is like starting a story right in the middle of the story. That's what it is. As I mentioned, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. And so Nehemiah is written with the understanding that you've already read Ezra and have a good idea of what happened in Ezra. And so what I'm going to do as we start and kick off the book of Nehemiah, this, this sermon series, is I'm going to turn back the pages for you just a little bit and give you a little bit of context about what is going on where are we? What's happened in the, the history of Israel? Where are they now? Where is Nehemiah? And so forth. So bear with me. We're going to have a little mini history lesson. Are you ready? You got, you got your, your thinking caps on for a second as we start? Okay. So around 627 BC, that's before Christ, 
Uh, so if Christ, Christ came historically about 3 B.C. was when he was born. So this is 627 uh, B.C. God calls Jeremiah the prophet. You guys, there's a book in the Bible called Jeremiah. God called Jeremiah to go to Judah. This is the southern kingdom. Uh, and it was the only remaining kingdom of Israel that was still around. The northern kingdom had fallen in 722. And God called Jeremiah to be his prophet, to go to Judah, to Jerusalem, and to the leaders and the people there to tell them, hey guys, warning, judgment is coming. Turn back to God. Now, you should keep in mind, if you read the beginning of Jeremiah, God says to Jeremiah, uh, by the way, no one's going to listen to you. No one's going to obey or, 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 or heed what I'm saying. They're all just going to keep doing what they're going to do. And in fact, Jeremiah, you should be ready. You're going to have a rough time. And in fact, he does. He gets thrown in a cistern. He gets almost killed uh, uh, and, and eventually gets exiled. So Jeremiah is preaching about a time of exile that's going to come, a, a time of judgment that's going to come. And he talks about that in Jeremiah 29, for instance. And then he began speaking about, in Jeremiah 31, a time when God would establish a new covenant with his people. And then in Jeremiah 33, he speaks of a time when God, after this exile, after this destruction, when God is going to, at some point in history, restore the people of God and restore their land and their home. Now, about 30 years later, in 597, the Babylonians come to Jerusalem and they kick out the king, King Jehoiakim, along with thousands of other leading Jewish citizens, and they exile them to Babylon, including the prophet Ezekiel. And so the prophet, uh, if you read Ezekiel, it is written, he is in exile now in Babylon, and that's where he's writing uh, from that standpoint. Then a few years later, in 586, fulfilling God's word spoken by Jeremiah, King Zedekiah, who is set up really by the Babylonians to kind of be their puppet king, he and Jerusalem was overtaken by King Nebuchadnezzar. Anyone hear that name before? King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. You think Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, which tells the story then of when Jerusalem uh, fell and all uh, many of the, the, the leading thinkers and, 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 and people, thousands of Jews were taken in exile to Babylon. And so you read Daniel 1 through 6 to get this story. So at this point, here's what I want you to keep in mind. 586, the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been ransacked and ruined. The city walls are broken down. The gates have been burned and are gone. The capital city of the Jews, the place that represented their peace, their prosperity, the place that was their home, the place where the throne of David once reigned, where, where David was told, your kingdom will last forever. This place is in shambles. Their home was no more. And all that remained was a shadow, a desolate shadow of happier times. And so for the next 50 years, God's people are in exile from their home. They're in a foreign place. They're in a, uh, the, the, the kingdom of, of Babylon. In 539, about 50 years later, the kingdom of Persia overtakes the Babylonian kingdom. And Cyrus the Great comes in and sets up his throne. And this is a vast, huge kingdom. Now, interesting thing about Cyrus, in God's providence, Cyrus was a guy who was kind of pluralistic in religion. He wanted people to practice their home country's religion. 
And so what did you know? In 538, Cyrus issues a decree that allows Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The land beyond the river is what Ezra and Nehemiah sometimes calls it. And it's namely, that's basically the land of Judah. And so later that same year in 538, this first wave of exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel and the high priest Jeshua, they return to their ruined home of Jerusalem and they begin rebuilding the temple. You can read Ezra 1 through 6 and read the prophets Hezekiah and Zechariah uh, to get this story. Now about 100 years later, in 458, I guess that's about 80 years, Ezra now leads a second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem to take gifts to the temple and to go and see how the work was going. How are people doing here? And this is during the seventh year of the Persian king, uh, of the reign of the Persian king Artaxerxes. And you can see this story in Ezra 7 through 10, which brings us up to Nehemiah chapter 1, which is where we are today. Now our story opens during the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, about 445 BC. It's about the winter time. It's 13 years after Ezra went back to Jerusalem with the second wave of exiles. And so let's keep this in mind and read Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11. This is God's word. The words of Nehemiah, his name means Yahweh comforts, by the way. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, which is about November, December-ish on our calendar. In the 20th year, that's the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, so about 445 BC. As I was in Susa, the citadel. Susa was the winter city of the Persian kings. So they were Babylon in the summer months and then they went east to Susa, the citadel there. So Nehemiah is in Susa, the citadel. Verse 2. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great an awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, 
I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray, accomplish the purpose that you have for this word in this time today. In Jesus' name, amen. Dorothy said, oh, but anyway, Toto, we're home. Home. And this is my room, and you're all here, and I'm not gonna leave here ever, ever again. Because I love you all. And oh, Auntie M, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. Dorothy's famous last words in the 1939 movie, The Wizard of Oz. Friends, whether you realize it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, all of us are longing for home. My family and I recently traveled across the country down to the east. I think we hit nine states, about 2,400 miles on the, the, uh, the, the blue minivan, and it's still going. We visited the beach. We enjoyed fellowship with good friends. We stayed in, in, a, in a condo on the beach. We stayed in several hotels along the way. Uh, we even had the great privilege of visiting a roadside porta potty on I-77 in the mountains of West Virginia when my three-year-old said, I gotta go, I gotta go, and he would not go outside on the road. He had to go into the porta potty It was a good vacation. It was a great vacation. And yet, while it was restful and relaxing and made lots of good memories, obviously, there was one thing missing. One thing that was lacking, you know what it was? My bed. Home. My bed. See, at the end of the day, there's nothing quite like sleeping in your own home, is there? In your own bed. And sleep away from home does not compare to sleeping in your own bed. Different surroundings, different pillows, sheets, different mattress, different noises, different lights. There's a study that actually shows that the first night away, it's called the first night effect. You only sleep with half your brain asleep. The other half is still alert and active. So if you change hotels, you know, eight times over the course of a trip, think about that. In summary, there's no place like home. Like Dorothy, we believe this. There's no place like home. And yet fundamentally, though, there is more to this longing for a familiar place to rest your head at night, 
deep inside each of us, we are longing for a true and a better home, a place of peace, satisfaction, and fulfillment, a place filled with warmth and laughter and joy and delight. Now, for the skeptic in here, the cynic who says, ah, not me, I'm not longing for anything. Let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever longed for the good old days? You know, hey, remember when? Wasn't that great? Or maybe you're, you know, you're thinking, gosh, remember when this country had it together? Right? Something like that. Seems like my grandparents said things like that. You ever dreamed of living quietly? Maybe by the seaside or, or on the lake or out in the woods or, or maybe sitting quietly on your porch on a nice spring day? You ever dream for the days of retirement and rest from the daily grind? You ever looked at old pictures of yourself and thought, wow, I, was, I looked pretty good back then. Where'd that guy go? Have you ever thought, after I do this, this, and this, my life's going to be better. I just got to get these things in order, then life will get better. You ever thought that? That's, a, that's, I think, more for young people. I remember being 15 and thinking, once I get my driver's license, it's all good. And then I got my license, and I thought, once I get 18 and get out of the house, it's all good. And you know, it keeps going, guys. You see, the reality is, and what this tells me, because I imagine many of us, if not all of us, can relate to at least one of these kinds of questions. What it tells me is that we're all longing for something better. We're all longing for, for a home. C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory uh, and calls this longing an inconsolable secret. It's a secret that he says is within each of us. And he says it's the secret that desires for our own far-off country. He goes on to say, however, that the secret is a longing which hurts us. It pierces us because we can't hide the secret. We can't get rid of it. It's still there. And yet we can't really tell what it is in reality. And this is what he writes. He says, we cannot tell it, this secret, this longing, because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We can't hide it or, or, or get rid of this longing because our experience is constantly suggesting it. These things, beauty, the memory of our own past, they're good images of what we really desire, but they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. You see, friends, what he's talking about and what he's getting at in substance is that as long as we're in this world, we're always longing for something better, for a true home. The reality is, is that we are exiles and nothing in this world can bring the peace, satisfaction, and fulfillment of the home that you are really longing for. You see, this is the position in which we find Nehemiah in our passage today. Here he is 13 years after Ezra had led this second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem it's a hundred years after the first exiles went back and rebuilt the temple. And a group of men come from, from Judah, including Nehemiah's own brother. Most scholars seem to agree that it probably could have been his brother, so hey, why not? And they come from Judah to visit Nehemiah in this city, the winter palace of, of the Persian kings. 
And so Nehemiah, of course, you can imagine he's eager. Okay, tell me what's going on at home. How are things going with our family? How's our home? And he asks him these two questions, and you see them in verse 2. And they basically are, how's our people? How's our home? And what do they say? Verse 3 tells us. The people are in great trouble and shame. The city is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. In other words, and if you're filling in the blank here, here, you can see it up here. The people are not flourishing and the city is not safe. The people are not flourishing and the city, our home, is not safe. Much like a, a parent who learns of a poor choice their child made or, or like the person who doesn't get that job you were hoping for or like the player who doesn't make the team. Nehemiah is disappointed to say the least. In fact, he is grieved. He is filled with sorrow. This was not what he expected to hear. Not what he hoped to hear. And in an instant like that, Nehemiah's perspective about home was changed forever. Three years ago, uh, my wife Tara and I were sitting on our, our we have a black wicker swing that's, that we can both sit on it. Sometimes our kids pile on it too. And we were swinging in our backyard uh, in our home in southern Illinois uh, where I was serving. It was early spring. It was the beginning of April. The air was warm. The sun was bright. And and our, our three boys were taking in the spring evening with, with great joy. You know, our oldest son was five. He was riding his big wheel everywhere and making all the noises that go with it. You know, just going on everything, probably trampling over people as, as he went. Our, our, our second son, Clay, who was three, was swinging on, on the swing. And he would go so high, he would go upside down. And he would say, I see the house upside down, guys. And he would just ride like this. Just joy, you know, pure smile on his face going and... And then, of course, our, our nine-month-old son, Graham, is sitting in his stroller watching with these eyes going, why can't I be out there? I can't wait to get out there. You know, he's just kind of going, you know, like that. I remember putting my arm around Tara and smiling, and, and what I was thinking, she expressed, and she said, we are so blessed. We are so blessed. What a home. About three weeks later, I remember sitting in that same place on that swing, looking at the swing set that was now empty. Facing the reality that our three-year-old son no longer lived in our home. April 30th, 2015, that month, our son Clay died. It was called Home to the Lord. And in an instant, our perspective about home changed forever. You see, friends, what Nehemiah expected to hear about his home, about Jerusalem, was these words that he knew from Jeremiah 33. And here's, here's what some of the words say. Jeremiah 33, verse 6, Jeremiah speaks about this time when God's going to restore and rebuild their home. And he says, and this is God speaking, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them, that's the people of God, abundance and prosperity and security. 
I, God, will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel. Verse 8, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Verse 9, in this city, this place shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. Verse 11, it says, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom, the voice of bride, and those voices who sing and they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Home. Nehemiah thought that when people are going back to Jerusalem, what does he think? Hey, home. We're getting home. Jeremiah 33 is happening right now. And what does he hear? He learns of his family in despair, his home in a state of destruction and unsafety, and in an instant, Nehemiah's perspective about home was changed forever. And he came face to face with the reality that faces us today, and it's this reality, it's up here already. This world is not our home. This world is not our home, friends. In fact, ever since Sin and death entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3. Ever since Adam uh, and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden, this world has not been our home. Ever since sin and death and brokenness came in because of the sin of Adam and his rebellion against God, this world has no longer been our home. Instead, the world that was once beautiful and pure and full of life is now a world mixed with ugliness and filth and, and death. Sure, we, we, we have great glimpses of beauty, don't we? Great glimpses of, of life and purity. Think of a new baby being born. Think of a, a breathtaking sunset. Think of a field of, of wildflowers in bloom. Think of a friend who loves you when you're being really hard to love. Think of the mountains, the majesty of the mountains after a spring rain, or think of a home that's filled with warmth and, and laughter and joy. Yes, we have great glimpses of home, but all of these are but a shadow of a greater reality, echoes of a better tune. The truth is, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2 and in Hebrews 11 and other places that we are exiles and sojourners living in a foreign land. And although we may experience glimpses of home in this world, we all long for something better, for a better and truer home, for a place of peace and fulfillment and satisfaction. And let me say this here. When we get into great trouble, friends, is when we start treating this world like our home and our final destination, and we lose sight of our eternal destination. That's when we really get into trouble. When we believe the lie that this, this is our final home, and this is all there is, that's when we really get into trouble. Let's not make that mistake. 
So as exiles in a foreign land, how, how do we live? How do we respond and deal with the reality that this world is not our home when that perspective changes? Let's notice what Nehemiah does when his perspective changed. Notice his priority here. Now, you should know, and as we get to know Nehemiah a little better, you're going to learn something about him. This guy was not a guy who, who just sort of sat back and watched things happen. He was a guy of action. He was a guy who took charge. He didn't ask questions. He was capable. He made quick decisions on the spot, sometimes because he had to protect the people right around him. Carry a sword and your hammer. They're going to come at you at night. Stay awake. Protect your wall. This guy was a general. He was named governor of the city of Jerusalem, in fact. So let's not miss the point in how he responds to this news. Nehemiah does take action, but it's not the kind of action you might expect from this take charge and go kind of guy. Instead, he does something else. Verse 4, And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down, I wept, and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's priority, when he was faced with the reality that this world's not my home and it's broken, his priority was to repent and seek God earnestly. And if you're following the timeline at the beginning of chapter 2, it says in the month of Nisan, he went into the king. Three months he did this. Three months he wept and prayed and fasted before the God of heaven. Why? Why did he do this? You see, Nehemiah acknowledged something that we are very quick to forget. He acknowledged that he was responsible for the mess that he was in. He acknowledged that we are the reason this world is not our home. Recently, I uh, went into the kitchen early one morning, as I often do, to prepare uh, breakfast. And there's a couple dishes that I, I, I uh, always use every morning. And so I was going to the dishwasher to get out my dishes that, that I was going to use to make breakfast. When I opened up the dishwasher and pulled them out, I noticed something. Hey, these are all dirty. You know, my first thought was, you know, my sweet wife was up in bed still. My first thought was to go, Tara, why didn't you start the dishwasher last night? Now, the truth is, the reason she didn't start the dishwasher was because that I was using some dishes the night before that uh, needed to be put in, and I needed to start it after I put those dishes in. There was a nice spot for them, and I, uh, I didn't do it. I was responsible for the mess that I was in. My instinct was to blame shift. Nehemiah doesn't blame shift the problem. When he hears of it, he doesn't start listing out excuses. Oh, I can't believe those exiles. They got it all wrong. No, he repents and seeks God earnestly. And as we'll see in a moment, he includes himself as just as much of a sinner and a rebel against God as everyone else. 
he takes responsibility. And then he goes to the only one who has the power to change the situation. He goes to God in prayer. Let's notice how he prays in verses 5 through 11. What he doesn't do is start out saying, Okay, God, here's what we need. We need, uh, we need food, we need an army, uh, we need uh, materials, uh, we need people. Let's start getting this done. Let's go. No, what does he start with? He starts with praise. He begins by praising God. Oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant, the God who's in relationship with us and steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word that's, that's chesed. It's, it's this covenantal love that's unbreakable. It's unconditional. God fulfills what needs to happen for that love to remain. We praise you, he says. It's good for us to, to kind of take note of this. I think we're quick in our prayers sometimes to jump right to the laundry list, right? Nehemiah begins by saying, God, you are awesome. You are great. You love us so much. Thank you. And then, secondly, verses 6 and 7, he moves to penitence which is another word for repentance. Now, if, you, if you're former Catholic, you might be going, wait a minute, this sounds like, no, it's not penance. That's different. We don't practice penance. We don't believe in penance. You know why? Because Jesus already paid the debt. Hallelujah, we don't have to pay it. No, penitence is just another word for repentance. And since I have to use P, because I'm in clearly a P thing here in this whole sermon, I went with penitence. Penitence is showing sorrow if it could have been a PR, it would have been better because, you know, everything else is like PR. Okay, anyway. Sorry, the inside ramblings of a preacher's head. Penitence. He goes in to say, I am a mess. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Whenever you hear in the Old Testament, especially this phrase, hear the prayer of your servant, it's, he's talking about himself. That's just another way of saying me, hear my prayer. He says, hear the prayer of your servant. Hear, hear my prayer. I'm praying before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Doesn't blame shift. Accepts responsibility. Includes himself. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you. We haven't kept your commandments, statutes, and rules. This is the threefold way the Old Testament refers to God's word. So he praises God. He moves to penitence or repentance. And then only after he's done these two things does he move into his petitions or his requests. Yeah, I got it. See, I got, look, I got another P. His petitions. He he presents his request to God, and he, he begins general and then moves to specific. Generally, he starts out verses 8, 9, and 10, and he says, Lord, remember what you've promised. Remember that you have promised to restore us. Remember your word. And he actually summarizes Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 4, where God speaks to Moses, and he talks about uh, how he's going to uh, um, restore his people. 
And if they return to him, he will gather them and bring them in. And then he moves to a specific request after his general, Lord, remember, remember us, remember you promised to be our God. And then he goes to a very specific request in 11, the first part, and he says, uh, he says, uh, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name and give success to your servant to me today and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. So there's sort of a little foreshadowing about what's going to happen next week in chapter two, but he says, Specifically, help me out. I'm about to go into a situation and I need your help. You see, although the situation in Jerusalem was dire, Nehemiah was not content to accept this as the final reality. Although this world is not our home, Nehemiah remembered that while we are here, God said something else in Jeremiah in chapter 29, and he said, seek the welfare of the place where you are. And so Nehemiah says, okay, I'm called to serve God by using my gifts and talents for the good of the world. I'm called to keep my conduct honorable among those around me. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to start praying and asking God to help. You see, friends, we may not be home yet, but there's no reason we can't make the most of where God has us right now. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us to do. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, that's what Nehemiah chooses to do. And why did he do this? He did this because he trusted God's word. He believed God would fulfill his promise. So what is God's promise exactly? Nehemiah summarizes Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 4. In verse 9, he asked God to remember the word that he gave Moses. And there's a promise in here. And there's piece of grace in here and he says but if you return to me this is God speaking to Moses that Nehemiah is now sort of summarizing if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven so even though you're scattered all over the earth from there I God will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And here's the promise, friends, the promise for Nehemiah, the promise for us. God will gather and bring his people home. No wonder Nehemiah wept and mourned over his people in his home in Jerusalem. He knew this promise. And he knew that since the people were not flourishing and the city was not safe, it was for one reason and one reason only. The people had not returned to God. They may have returned to their city, to their homes. They may have even returned to the temple and, and, and rebuilt it and even started practicing outward worship and sacrifices. But in truth, their hearts were far from God. And because of this, he sat down and wept and mourned for three months. Almost 500 years later, much like Nehemiah, there was another man who wept over Jerusalem. In fact, speaking about Jerusalem and having a conversation with, with some of the leaders of Jerusalem, this man said in Luke chapter 13, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you're not willing. You're not willing to be gathered. You see, this man, his name's Jesus. 
And he came offering living water that never runs out, offering the bread of life that eternally fulfills, offering light that overcomes darkness, offering peace that surpasses all understanding. And yet the people loved darkness instead of light, and they sought to kill him, and eventually they did. And as he made his final journey into the city before his death, Luke 19 tells us that when he drew near to Jerusalem and he saw it, you know what he did? He wept over it. He wept. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. You see, friends, rather than choose the peace, fulfillment, and satisfaction that only Jesus can provide, the people of this world who think this is their home choose trouble and shame and destruction and death. Friends, we need a better home than this. A better place, a place that does not have sin, that does not have darkness, that does not have shame, does not have death. And there's good news, friends. There's wonderful news. And the good news is this. God is committed to securing and establishing a better home for you. He says, though we are outcasts in this world, if we return to him, if we turn to him, he is going to gather and bring them to a place he has chosen to make his name dwell there. Now, friends, we can't return to God on our own. But thanks be to God that Jesus has done what we cannot do. Though we deserve to be left in exile in a foreign land, Jesus was exiled so that we might come home. You see, it was at the cross. Jesus, who only honored and perfectly obeyed God, was forsaken, condemned, cut off, from God so that we might be accepted and forgiven and loved. See, it's at the cross where God's commitment to securing and establishing a home for us is revealed. It's at the cross where we see that God makes us a people who are worthy to live in that home through what Christ has done. You see, when Christ died on the cross, he secured the right for us to come home to God. And when he rose from the dead, he established a new beginning. Namely, that one day he would make all things new. If you go to the end of the story, and I don't mean Nehemiah, I mean Revelation. There's a beautiful picture of what our home, our new home looks like. Revelation 21, John the apostle is seeing this vision of this new home and and he says then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man no longer separate because of sin, but with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, 
nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that is Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, friends, this is the home that God is preparing for his people. He says that in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And there is no place on earth like this home. And for those who, like Nehemiah, take responsibility for the mess we're in, who earnestly repent and seek God for mercy and forgiveness, for those who call upon Jesus and by faith receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. Friends, Jesus welcomes you home. He welcomes you home. Won't you come home to him? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you love us enough to come into our our broken, messed up world that we've messed up so that you might redeem us and restore us. We thank you, Jesus, for your compassion for us and for your sacrifice for us. And we praise you, Spirit of God, for applying Jesus' work on the cross to us who believe. Help us to keep that perspective that this is not our home, that a better home awaits. And help us to work and and to sacrifice for the glory of God because of what you have done, because we are so thankful, Lord. Help us to live in a way that honors you, Lord, in this place as we wait and long for our new home. Thank you for welcoming us home, for making a new place for us. We love you and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.